0: Or at whatwasthatlike.com.
2: Darkcast Network. Where the light shines brightest on our indie podcasts.
1: This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised.
2: Welcome to Fruit Loops episode 145. Thank you so much for listening. Bienvenidos, yeah. bitches. We've missed you and <laughs> buiti binafi. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we do not hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not. Oh, serial killers are straight, cis, able-bodied white dudes. I am telling you. (laughs) God damn it. When when (laughs) will people listen to me? There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly.
1: And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white.
2: It's not her fault. <laughs> Sorry.
1: We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists, just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to Pod at gmail.com, or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294, and we oh, may feature it on a
2: future episode. That's <laughs> right, the phone number is 602-935-6294. Nine Not four. four. <laughs> <laughs> also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So,
1: are we talking about today, Beth? Today, we're talking about Juan Covington, a Black American serial killer who killed at least three people in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and uh possibly more. Mm-hmm. Well,
2: before we get into it, how you doing?
1: I'm doing all right. It's been rough at work. Everybody's oh my going down with COVID. Yeah. Everybody
2: is going down. But you know who's not going down? The wages of the people we work for. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, uh, yeah, it feels like uh, we're in the trenches. I-, yeah. I mean, everywhere you go. It's not just our office. No, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. Um, and times are hard. So I just... um trying to remember to be compassionate you know uh I went to the pharmacy the other day yeah Yeah. everybody was a trainee it's all right y'all yeah I mean if you want to give me a few extra vikies that's okay (laughs) um you're training it's all right I have patience and compassion because everybody is really doing their best it's
1: rough yeah it's
2: rough out there you guys It, it is uh well, uh, the Williamses are moving to Atlanta. Yeah, you can finally <laughs> announce the news. Finally, yeah. we are so fucking excited. And I've been pretty unapologetic and honest about, you know, people ask, or, or, uh, I've been getting a lot of questions. Why are you moving? Do you even know anybody where? Um, Yes. Uh, yes to all of those things. But I'm going to be honest, after 2020 and the murder of George Floyd, it became more and more Obvious and clear to uh, old Whitey and I that um, we needed to raise our kids in a much more diverse um, place. Yeah. Um, And that's where we're going. So yeah. that's why we're doing it. So well, good uh, for you. I mean, I don't, you. I don't
1: want you to go, but uh, I you know. <laughs> am going to miss Beth so
2: much. Yeah. The show will go
1: on, yeah. and yeah, I don't know, that's not we'll, going to end.
2: Yeah, we've talked about um, extra segments since since I won't be seeing you in the office anymore, um, right? We'll have to get our chatting done online. Online. And um, maybe we can have the uh, Fruities um, listen in. Yes. (laughs) Um, So now we're going to get into some listener letters. Hello, Angels. Thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What's in the bag, Beth? Well, I wanted to say thank you to Ainsley, Sophie, Tiara, and Francis for your emails. And also, thank you to Loriole for your five star review.
2: Thank you so much, Hip Hop Airhorns.
1: Yeah, thank Thank you you very much. And then we got a voicemail from Sue from Canada.
3: Hi, this is Sue. I'm calling from Vancouver in British Columbia in Canada. I just want to say how much I love the podcast. I have been listening last year when I discovered it, and um, I am just so, so happy. You two are are amazing together. Your chemistry is wonderful, and I recommend you to everybody I know who has any interest at all in any of the subjects you cover, and even just for Culture Corner. That in itself is is priceless. Um, I, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. I am a white Gen X like that. Um, born a couple years uh, later than Beth, so I have a, a, I get a lot of her references. But I'm also a really sick buck like Wendy. I love the details. I know it's sick and it's twisted, and I love it. And I'm here for it. <laughs> um, I did want to say one thing, and I don't know if this maybe has been brought up before. I I know you've brought up uh, the policing in the U.S. It has its base in, in slave recovery and often capture freed people, um, I want to let you know that in Canada, our uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, our RCMP, which is our national police force, they have their history in the Northwest Mounted Police, whose job it was to get the Indigenous people off of their land and enforce the orders of the white settlers who discovered a new place to live. So I I just wanted to give you that little bit of culture corner from Canada. And um, I love you guys. I I give you a five-star review once I finally figure out how to do it on Spotify. Um, And I just want to say how much I appreciate and love what you guys do and your passion for it. I hope you're having a wonderful break. And I'm looking forward to the next episode.
2: Bye. Oh,
3: Sue. Sue.
2: Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. Your, pop thank air you. Sue. Your voicemail <laughs> made our year. I yeah. don't need to see anything else in 2022. Sue's voicemail has taken care of every, all of my needs. And uh, <laughs> I'll see you in 2023. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you, Sue. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we also got some new patrons and Patreons. And we just want to say thank you all so much Yeah. Um, for even supporting us while we were on a break and there wasn't. Yeah. Like, like, um, I know. <laughs> we were away and you still loved us and we appreciate it so we, much. So, yeah, hip hop air horns really to all of you. We are so grateful. Hip hop air horns now because I am a forgetful bitch. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, we got Amber H. We got Kim J. We got Jillian G. We got Mel and Tracy who are partnered and both are our patrons, which is wow, amazing. Wow. Very cool. Uh, yeah. Patricia S. and Christina D. So, here are your tunes. I hope I do not fuck them up. All right. Oh, wow. Amber, Amber, (laughs) Amber, now get up off of that thing uh, and dance to you. Feel better. Get up off of that thing. And thanks for being a patron. Hey. Uh, Thank you, Amber. (laughs) Um, Kim J, bang, bang, choo-choo train. Come on, Kim J, do your thing. Uh, (laughs) Jillian, I'm pulling up on you, Jillian. Put some respect on my name. Put some respect on my name. Put put some respect on my name, Jillian. Ow. All right, next one. Uh, This is for Mel and Tracy. Tracy only happens when well's raining. Fruit Loops always love you all for listening. Say true crop. It will come and it will go. Thank you, Tracy and Mel. You know, you know, oh, 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 you know. (laughs) I'm so stupid. Okay, next. All right. In honor of Betty White, Patricia, this is for you. Patricia had a party. invited all the fruities to... The cops can't see the crimes were caused by me and Beth. Patricia would say she ain't seen a thing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Christina D. Annie, are you okay? You've been hit by, you've been struck by a smooth Christina. (laughs) Thank you all so much. We are going to take a little break and get back to the story when we come back. stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop serial killers of color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash fruit. All right. We are back. Remind us, Beth, who's our subject again? Today, we're talking about
1: Juan Covington, a black man who killed at least three people, wounded two, and is suspected in the disappearance of a female co-worker. That part of the story is
2: crazy. So now we're going to get into some stats. Okay, so the victims here. Our Reverend Thomas Lee, Devlin, 49. uh, David Stewart, 43, was shot and survived. William Bryant, 33 years old, also survived. Odie's Bosket, 36. Patricia Trish McDermott was 48. And the perp today is suspected in the disappearance of Brynwanda C. Smith, which we will get into later. But for now, setting time. Take us there, Beth.
1: The setting is Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You may recall some of the early history of Philadelphia from the Hannah Mary Ted episode last year.
2: That's right.
1: Yep. As a reminder, the land where Philadelphia now sits is part of the traditional home of the Lenape people, also known as the Lenny Lenape and the Delaware people. They lived in what is now known as Delaware, New Jersey, and New York, including Long Island, as well as Pennsylvania.
2: So, colonizers arrived, as (laughs) they often do, in the early 1600s, and they began to settle, quote-unquote, although it probably wasn't that benign. Initially, they were living with the Lenape, then pushing them westward. Philadelphia was founded by Quakers. Uh, It's not just oatmeal, y'all, who (laughs) thought of themselves as bringers of brotherhood and equality, and this was also the place where the U.S. Declaration of Independence was signed, though, as we know, that did not equate to freedom for everyone. Right. Colonizers began to bring
1: enslaved Africans over not long after settling in the area. In 1780, a policy of gradual emancipation was instituted in Pennsylvania. In 1880, the Black population in Philadelphia rose to nearly 32,000 out of a total population of about 85,000. That's a lot. That is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. In 1884, there were approximately 300 Black-owned businesses, including the Philadelphia Tribune, which is started in
2: 1884. Wow. So most of the Black population in Philadelphia were free by 1811, although some remained enslaved until the 1840s. In the years leading up to the Civil War, Philadelphia had the largest Black population outside of the slave states. Wow. After the Civil War, Black Americans in Philadelphia
1: organized to end segregation of the city's schools and streetcars and to regain the right to vote. An 1881 law legally ended segregation in Pennsylvania schools, but it was largely ignored.
2: Of course. Um, I've shouted out a podcast here before called Black History for White People, and they talk about just the logistically segregation is so. Fucking stupid because it you you have separate um, streetcars right. so the train companies are losing money on segregating these cards when they should be trying to fill them up with as many patrons as possible. There's separate bathrooms. So that means um, there was, you you know, yeah. Businesses have to pay for extra facilities. There's separate entrances. So those have to be maintained. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Besides the fact that it's inhumane, but anyway, uh, in 1887, the state legislature passed an equal rights bill that prohibited segregation in public accommodations. But like the 1981 legislation, it was generally disregarded. It nearly took a century until the nineteen seventies to desegregate schools in Pennsylvania.
1: World War One brought an influx of black migrants from the South during the Great Migration, and the black population of Philadelphia doubled from sixty-three thousand in nineteen hundred to one hundred and thirty-four thousand in nineteen twenty. Wow. Most of the new residents came from rural backgrounds and were working poor.
2: Construction of new homes in Philadelphia couldn't keep up with the demand, so black people moved into existing houses in white neighborhoods where they encountered hostility and racism. Surprise! Uh, yes, you're not going <laughs> to believe this, girls. Now, in July 1918, after two black families on Pine Street were attacked by white neighbors who burned their household furnishings in the middle of the street, G. Grant Williams, a black man and the editor of the Philadelphia Tribune, wrote an article in the paper advising black people to hold their ground and defend themselves. These were American citizens, by the way. Yeah, and yeah. Many of them fought in the, this was first World War times. I mean, um, had every right to be and live where they And, and not have
1: their, their shit burned in the street. Uh, amen. Yeah.
2: Praise the Lord. Hello. Thank you. Hello.
1: <laughs> Three weeks later, racial violence erupted again, during which time black homes were destroyed by white mobs. Three people were killed. One man was nearly lynched and a white police officer beat up a black man while he was in the hospital. I'm sorry. While he was in the While hospital? he was in the hospital.
2: Oh my fucking God. Um, wow. So trash. as a result, yeah, trash. Sometimes American history really <laughs> oh sucks. My golly, yeah. this really sucks. So as a result, Black people in Philadelphia formed the Colored Protective Association led by Reverend R.R. R. Wright Jr. to, quote, have a permanent organization of protection, end quote, to fight discrimination in schools, housing, employment, and elsewhere, and to investigate cases of police brutality and police collusion with the white rioters. Uh, yes, a lot of the um, most prominent racists were part of the electorate and the police forces. Yeah. Their efforts eventually led to the removal of the entire police force by the director of public safety. The Great
1: Depression hit Black Philadelphians hard. By 1933, 50% of all Black residents were unemployed. Yet by 1935, African-Americans owned 9,855 homes and 787 stores. They were also working in more professional occupations like physicians, clergymen, school teachers, and policemen. In 1938, Crystal Bird Fawcett became the first female African-American elected as state legislator.
2: Wow. Well, that is fantastic. Yeah. You love to see it. Um, so at the same time, neighborhoods where black people lived were also becoming more concentrated and more segregated from white neighborhoods. As Mr. Rogers might have said, can you say white flight? <laughs> 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 did he really talk about that on his show? Uh, I don't think so. But oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but he used to say, "Can you say something?" Can, okay, <laughs> okay. I was gonna say because he did. There was that scene where he um, put his feet in the swimming pool with the black yeah. man, and it was yeah. woo controversial.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. He was. He was a good person. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. Though World War II brought wartime jobs back to black folks, they still faced substandard housing and were not allowed to work on Philadelphia public transit as. Most motormen or conductors until the federal government stepped in to pressure the Philadelphia Transportation Company to open up these jobs to them in 1944.
2: Philadelphia was a center for the mid-20th century golden age of gospel music. Hello, somebody! (laughs) I got a testimony! Uh, So, attracting performers like nationally renowned male quartets like Dixie Hummingbirds and the sensational Nightingales, as well as gospel singer Marion Williams, before she started her solo career. The fight against discrimination and segregation in education and employment
1: continued through the 1950s and 60s, with legal battles and protests occurring throughout those years. Cecil B. Moore, president of the local NAACP, was a leading activist during that time, and Reverend Leon Sullivan was instrumental in building Black community and economic power.
2: The 60s saw a rise in the Black Power movement in Philadelphia. Freedom Library on Ridge Avenue in North Philadelphia started in 19. 19- by John Churchville was where Churchville and other activists gathered to form the Black Power Unity Movement in 1965.
1: Another important center of Black Power was the Church of the Advocate in north-central Philadelphia, whose congregation had become increasingly Black. Father Paul Washington was the head of the Church of the Advocacy and gained national attention in 1968 when the church hosted the first national Black Power Convention.
2: Hello. Yeah, uh, yeah a quick Culture Corner. We've talked about this in other episodes, but just a reminder, um, a lot of Black um, progress and um, innovation and uh, activism occurred in the church. Would have been yeah. impossible without the institution of the Black church. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, Philadelphia soul was a genre of music that arose in the late 1960s and 70s. Hello. Anybody want to give us a call and shout out to your loved ones? Influenced <laughs> by funk, it was characterized by lush instrumental... instrumental. Or I, I'm so... I'm so excited to talk about this part. My mouth is watering. Stumbling all over yourself. Characterized by lush instrumental arrangements with with, with sweeping strings and piercing horns. Fred Wesley described it as putting the bow tie on funk. Ooh,
3: I like that. mm, mm,
2: mm, 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 mm. That sounds so delicious. Uh, It moved funk more towards the disco sound that would become popular in the late 1970s and influenced later Philadelphia-born music makers like Jill Scott. Jilly from Philly, Uh, (laughs) y'all. Uh, Time for a disco break. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Feel free to join in, everybody. Just turn on your favorite disco tune. All right, who's over there on the roller skating rink? I mean, just ooh, it just feels good, doesn't it?
1: Oh, hey, did you know that disco is short for discotheque, a French word for library of phonographic records? Did not. The term discotheque became used for a type of nightclub in Paris, France, after Mm. these had resorted to playing records during the Nazi occupation in the early
2: 1940s. I had no idea. Wow, very interesting. Also, uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but a lot of Black artists and musicians um, sought found refuge in France and French people loved black music in the for in the, after the war um and uh, welcomed black artists um and lo- like loved jazz and so it, it total it makes this makes Total, Total sense. sense what you yeah, said. yeah. Um, so Vince Aletti was one of the first to describe disco as a sound or a music genre. He wrote the feature article "Disco Tech Rock Party" that appeared in <laughs> Rolling Stone. There's a lot of A's in that yeah, party, there is party that appeared in, in Rolling Stone magazine in September 1973. So Minnie has a song here that was stuck in her head. <clears throat> now I'm gonna sing it. Body rock is in the house tonight. Everybody, Everybody just have, have a good, good
1: time.
2: time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Minnie says, "You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Minnie." So, uh, that that isn't really disco, but I did appreciate what uh, Barry Gordy and his little his son were trying to pull off uh, with with that group. Super fun to dance to. Um Beth, do you have a favorite disco song? I I'm, I'm going to have to go with uh I will survive. <laughs> You bitch, that was it my, was <laughs> was, oh my <laughs> in fact I was scrolling, I was I was reading through the script before we we got started and I was like, ooh, I'm gonna I got it. I
1: got it. <laughs> I'm sorry I stole your favorite that's disco okay. song. but that's okay, but, but, you but know, let's add it, makes sense. it
2: does because it is amazing. Um but Minnie, her favorite disco song is You Can Ring, ring my bell
1: she said i still remember the first time i heard this song on the radio it was magical
2: oh my god i just picture you guys in your house with like glitter all over the floor blue eyeshadow like so what we used
1: to do is we we had a radio and A tape player, okay. and we would uh, put the tape player by the radio, and when our song would come on, we'd record so we could of listen to course. it later. Who yeah. didn't do that? <laughs> well, a lot of the young people around here, all of you oh, younguns, you whippersnappers. Oh, yeah, they don't. They don't. You might not know about that. Your yeah. two
2: finger g- record and play game was not strong. <laughs> Mine was fierce. If it yeah. was an Olympic
1: sport. <laughs> And uh, this has been Disco Corner with Wendy and Beth. Wendy and Beth. (laughs) All right. (laughs) That was fun. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but back to Philadelphia. Got it. The city continued to be a center of both racial discord and violence and Black activism and empowerment through the 1980s. In the 20th and 21st centuries, Black Philadelphians actively campaigned against discrimination and continued to contribute to Philadelphia's cultural, economic, and political life as workers, activists, artists, musicians, and politicians.
2: Yeah, we. I should say we're just t- touching the surface as Far yeah. as black history is concerned in philadelphia and also not to mention the indigenous history that's been erased you can't Wiped you can't out. talk yeah. about yeah you can't talk about philadelphia without its indigenous history as well so um i just encourage people to find out as much as they can because it is all of it is so fascinating yeah. good the good the bad and the ugly it is really really interesting stuff so um many philadelphia activists of the mid to late 20th century went on to achieve political power in 1975 cecil b more won a seat on the city council see dolores tucker became the first Black Pennsylvanian appointed to the office of the Secretary of State. Wow. David P. Richardson was elected to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives in 1972. And in 1984, W. Wilson Goode became Philadelphia's first Black mayor. Wow. Woo-ha! Now, Goode's administration was followed by Black mayors John Street and Michael Nutter. Very cool. Mm. Despite the persistence of problems like
1: unemployment and high public school dropout rates, the black community in Philadelphia in the early 21st century continued to attract new residents and contribute its talents and energy to the city. In 2010, the black population stood at about 650,000, 43% of Philadelphia's entire population.
2: That's amazing. Very That's cool. amazing. Yeah. Um yeah, definitely. So from 1990 to 2010, black residents moved in significantly significant numbers away from the core areas of North and West Philadelphia to Southwest Philadelphia, Overbrook, the Lower East and elsewhere. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger,
0: and romance.
1: That's right. It's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries.
2: Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test. Sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects and claim rewards. The visuals
1: are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. (laughs) As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger
2: and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet
1: escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in
2: all of us. Find your inner detective. Download Juden's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Um, So now we're going to get into Covington's early life. What do you got, Beth?
1: Juan Covington was born on March third, nineteen sixty-two, in Logan, a neighborhood in North Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He grew up with both his parents and an older brother, James, and they seemed to have a normal family life.
2: Juan, a regular kid with regular hobbies, rarely, if ever, bothered anyone as a boy. He attended Roman Catholic high school and enjoyed basketball. A woman who lived across the street from the family said that Juan and his older brother James shared an almost inseparable bond. After graduating high school, Juan
1: signed up for college classes, but ended up dropping out after a year, as many of us have done during our first year of college. (laughs) It is
2: rough. It is not easy.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He didn't go back to try again, though. In May of 1983, when Juan was 21 years old, the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority, or SEPTA, Public Transit System in Philadelphia, hired him as a bus driver.
2: That's a good job. I mean... To be honest, I mean, good benefits, good, benefits, good yeah. pay. I think there's a union, all the things, right? Yeah. Um. So two years later, Juan began dating a woman who attended Temple University. As the relationship blossomed, the woman moved in with Juan and his parents. They had a child together, but uh, they never married.
1: Their son, Joe, now an adult, remembers some happy times with his dad, but his relatives also remember some troubles. Juan was a reluctant parent and had a history of making promises to his son and then breaking them.
2: I Well, I mean being a parent is hard, period, yeah. but a young yeah. a young parent is also a Very challenge. Yeah. Uh, so he sought mental health treatment in the late 1980s at an area hospital, and this was around a time that his father died in 1989 when Juan was 27, uh, and Juan went into a depression. His behavior grew erratic, and his brother James recalled times when Juan would forgetfully repeat himself.
1: At his family's urging, Juan visited a psychiatrist and a psychologist in the early 1990s. Family members said he had become withdrawn refusing to care for his mother while she was succumbing to diabetes and other illnesses. I have to say that's uh unusual in the early 1990s I would I would think for, uh, yeah, for a would, black would, family to to yes. urge one of their family members to to seek mental health.
2: Mental health counseling or mental help outside of the church. Right even. right. Um so yes you are absolutely right. <laughs> look at this well i wouldn't here. have known that if, if you stuff. hadn't taught me that <laughs> <laughs> look at this bitch over here oh no <laughs> uh, i love to see it uh yeah you're right you're absolutely right um but i i'm i'm glad we know this part of the story because it's not it's not as though he completely fell through the cracks as right we, right as we go through the story there was there was people were trying trying to help um, yeah so in 1993, when Juan was 31, he decided that he had recovered and told family members he was not taking his medication anymore. Now, that is the worst. I don't know yeah. if you've ever done that, been like, I feel great. And then a few I, days later, yeah. you're having a br- a very bad breakdown i and you I've cannot not get out of
1: bed. I've not done <laughs> that, but I know people who have, and uh, it's very frustrating to watch. Um, yeah. It, you're trying to convince them not to stop their medication, and they're like, nope. <laughs> nope. <Yeah>.
2: I feel good. <laughs> Great. And then next thing you know... You don't. Yeah. Uh, so he, so he, I'm. I'm speaking for myself. Uh, so he, he privately uh, told his brother that his medicines, quote, were making him the devil. Unquote.
1: Hmm. He began to exhibit strange behaviors, such as dressing in military fatigues and creeping around the neighborhood, oh. apparently hunting things that were only visible to him, and they weren't Pokemon.
2: No, gotta catch catch them all.
1: He would go days without bathing or grooming and on one Christmas he his family said he stared at the Christmas tree and told
2: them he thought it was moving. Oh, oh that's, uh, he, that's he that's groovy. Yeah. Yeah. um, Lay hands on this man, uh, surround him with prayer and uh, get the blessed oil, grandma. Uh, So uh, he once told his brother James that he couldn't move his left arm for three weeks because he had been cursed. He also told James that he thought people were trying to hurt him. And there were certain people that he couldn't trust because they were possessed. Hmm. This really sounds like paranoid schizophrenia to me, um, though I am not a medical professional, (laughs) despite what NBC tells you. So uh, take that with a grain of salt, whatever, whatever you like. Uh, but yeah, it is. Um, I am impressed, uh, for lack of a better word, that family members noticed, um, and uh, that um, it wasn't just like, oh, he's he's just being, you know, whatever. That yeah. they they saw something's going Some, on. We there's a problem. We, yeah. There's something going on. We got to do something about this.
1: As his mental state deteriorated, his girlfriend and mother of his child moved out. Juan met another woman and moved with her to Elkins Park, but by nineteen ninety seven he was back to living in his parents' home by himself.
2: His mother died during Juan's absence. I should also say that the um the, the story mentioned that his mother was ill with, you know, diabetes right. and stuff like that. And um he neglected taking care of her, but that must have also been a challenge on top of being a young father, right. Having the mental health everything struggles. Else, his father yeah. died, everything else. So his mother died during and during Juan's absence and uh when he he moved back to Logan, he gave his parents furniture away to his next door neighbor. The neighbor described it as very nice stuff and said that he thought Juan was just trying to be a good guy.
1: In February of that same year, while working for SEPTA, he asked co-worker Brynwanda C. Smith for a date. She was 24 at the time, and he was 34. She refused the date and then disappeared on February 18th, some days after they had been seen arguing in the SEPTA yard.
2: There is no evidence that he was involved in her disappearance or that she was murdered. He was never charged with her murder or disappearance, and he did not later confess to any involvement. But it is rather coincidental that they worked together, knew each other, and then she disappeared after she rejected him. Yeah, that's
1: quite a coincidence.
2: Oh, yes. dink. One of her co-workers had offered
1: Brenwanda a ride home the day that she disappeared, but she declined, saying that she was already waiting for a ride. She never arrived home, has never been heard from again, and her case remains unsolved.
2: It's a strange one, because my understanding is what this alleged argument took place like earlier in the day and it wasn't until like hours later that she was like I'm getting right home so what was she doing there all that time we don't know So anyway, um, none of her coworkers or known friends or family have said that they are the person she was waiting for. None of them came forward and she was not known to act impulsively. Um, And friends and family describe her as being quite responsible and dependable.
1: It is possible that this is a completely unrelated cold case, but Brenwanda was last seen at the Luzerne Depot near Old York Road and Luzerne Avenue in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at 7 p.m. several hours after her work day had ended.
2: Juan Covington's next-door neighbor said that Juan became even more withdrawn after Brenwanda had rejected him. They used to sit on the porch their houses shared and joke around together. But after that incident, Juan would never stop to talk. He'd just go in and out of the house without stopping to spend any time socializing.
1: Juan also never replaced any of the furniture that he gave away. So by this time, he was living all alone in a mostly empty house. He squabbled with his neighbor, whose children used to hang out on the common porch, He didn't like the children being there anymore. So he'd argue a bit with his neighbor about it, then mumble something and walk away.
2: So now we're going to get into the timeline on August 19th, 1998, Covington transitioned from being simply an odd guy to being a murderous odd guy. (laughs) Uh, And around 8.40 p.m. that evening, Covington donned a ski mask and entered the Divine Shepherd Baptist Church in Logan, Pennsylvania, which was located in the basement of a home.
1: Covington Covington's 49-year-old cousin, Reverend Thomas Lee Devlin, was leading the prayer service in the basement of his sister's home. The reverend had been holding prayer services there every Wednesday for 12 years, and it wasn't
2: unusual for strangers to come in and join the worship. While Thomas was preaching from the podium, the masked Covington entered the basement carrying a duffel bag, and then he opened fire. He shot Thomas numerous times, killing him, then ran from the house, got in his car, and drove away.
1: It was later discovered that thomas had been shot 11 times in the body
2: Whoa. and four
1: times in the head that is overkill jiminy crickets is, yeah wow numerous other shots had missed him and hit the podium instead so there was even more shots Jeez. oh
2: my god
1: uh so the reverend's brother who is also a reverend david devlin who was also present later described it as an assassination i i should say so yeah
2: yeah Uh, So Reverend Thomas Devlin was one of nine children. His brother David said that Thomas had been a minister since he was 16 years old and had preached all over the city. David also said that Thomas had served his country in Vietnam, was a great singer and a wonderful person. He was well known and respected in the clergy community, and it was a great loss when he was shot down that day.
1: It didn't occur to any of Covington's relatives that he could possibly have been the perpetrator of this horrible shooting. He even joined in the Morning services with oh, David.
2: I hate it when I they know. do that.
1: <laughs> and with David and Thomas's mother Mary, when it finally came out years later that Covington had done the shooting, David said that Covington ought to have an Academy Award for how he acted during the morning period. Mm. David's mother Mary would only say, "Quote that man done lost his mind." Unquote.
2: Oh, well, I'll say that's I yeah. mean In a nutshell. Uh, Yeah. yeah, uh, Again, if we titled our episodes, (laughs) that would be the title. That man (laughs) that lost his mind. Uh, So for the time being, though, the case remained unsolved and Covington remained free to do as he liked. In December 2000, he showed up in South Plainfield, New Jersey at the home of his son's mother and her husband. Police responded to the call about a confrontation that had been reported there but made no arrests. His son Joe said that he wanted to move back to Logan with Covington. So Covington took him along back to Pennsylvania.
1: But the new living arrangement was fraught with trouble, as you might imagine. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. According to a family member, Covington fought with Joe, who was a young teenager by then, and cursed him. Once, said the relative, he even pointed a gun at Joe. Wow.
0: Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
2: We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast.
3: Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to
2: make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to the Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. I mean, you never had a family member do that to another family member. No. Oh, just me? Okay. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so Covington's work life also spun out of control. Uh, SEPTA fired him in September 2001. He told his son he had fallen asleep while driving a bus and had several altercations with coworkers. He had worked there for 18 years. Wow. Hmm.
1: Wow. So he worked there for 18 years and then. Without
2: incident. Yeah. Apparently.
1: And then he got fired. Wow. Yeah. Wow. He quickly found another job at a Home Depot in Upper Darby, but it didn't last long. He told Joe that he had punched a customer in the face and was fired.
2: (laughs) Wow. Well, I need more details. (laughs) I mean...
1: So this is a little aside from Minnie. She said, I mean, I worked at Home Depot, too, at one point and definitely wanted to punch customers in the face. But they kind of frowned on that sort of thing. (laughs) Do
2: they? But I mean... uh I, I, I'm just saying sometimes the
1: feeling, but yes,
2: you can't do it.
0: (laughs) But, but I mean, well, I guess you could
1: do it, but you'll probably be fired just like uh, Mr. Covington.
2: Yeah. Which is too bad. Yeah. I mean, in what world? When, when, when will we be able to go around and just punch Punch people in the face without without any punishment? (laughs) when you when you get to heaven only in our dreams <laughs> <Yeah>. yes <laughs> So um, things definitely did not go better from there. Joe told a relative that he and his father would get off buses and subways at stops nowhere near the Logan home because Covington worried someone was after him. Covington's paranoia was starting to become obvious to more people. Covington also applied for a gun permit in 2001, which was an excellent idea (laughs) given his condition. After
1: losing his job at Home Depot, Covington found employment as a medical waste hauler for the Philadelphia. Hospitals. The good thing is that by this time they were no longer dumping their medical waste in the waters of Philadelphia. So,
2: pause. No what? more confusing
1: discarded <laughs> torsos for medical waste in oh, this city. That's
2: right. <laughs> Hannah <Hanna-Berry> Marie Tabs. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're going to talk about this later um, in the shout out portion, but uh, in Yellow Jackets, when she was like, if all you have is a torso, they can't, fi- <laughs> they can't figure out anything. <laughs> Problem <laughs> solved. Yeah. Um, so in uh, in 2003... Covington's brother, James, petitioned family court to get custody of Joe. The court ordered Joe to move in with his uncle in West Oak Lane and told Covington to seek counseling before he could see his son again. Covington opted out of counseling and went on a shooting spree instead. Hashtag live choices. (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: In May of 2003, Covington approached David Stewart, 43, as he was walking to work near Covington's home. Covington displayed a gun and then shot David numerous times. David survived the attack, though he was unable to identify his attacker. Police later learned that David was friends with Covington's next-door neighbor, though David didn't know Covington.
2: Was he wearing the ski mask this time, too? I don't think so. Okay. Um, So, on April 26, 2004, Covington shot William Bryant, who was 33, from behind as William was walking to work. After shooting him several times, William fell to the ground, and then Covington stood over him and fired two more shots. Wow. Uh, William was shot a total of nine times, but miraculously, he survived. Yeah, that's amazing. That is amazing. Look at God. (laughs)
1: A social worker, Clyde A. Johnson, was arrested and held for this murder, but was later released on July 29, 2005, after ballistics evidence linked the murder to Covington's gun. This poor man was held for 15 months after he'd been picked out of a photo lineup by an eyewitness.
2: Oh, yeah. I hate.
1: That <laughs> his bail was set at five hundred thousand dollars, so of course he couldn't post it, right? So he was detained at the city's current Frommhold correctional facility until he was finally released.
2: That's a that's a, a, a egregious miscarriage yeah, of justice, it is. um, and yeah, um bail reform that's all i can say is uh you shouldn't you sh- i mean if he had had the money he could have fought his case he could have you know so yeah, many so many things could have happened Justice but this is
1: not just
2: no this cost is so prohibitive of sure. of anybody doing anything about the accusations against right, them. it's, right. it's um, really terrible. Um, so can I just say once again, that eyewitness testimony sucks balls. <laughs> uh, William Bryant did agree that Clyde was his assailant after Clyde had been picked out of the lineup by the eyewitnesses, but this was after he had been shot from behind. And the only chance he would have had to see his assailant was when he was on the ground and already injured from seven bullet wounds. Right? And memory can do tricky things to us in times of stress.
1: Yeah. So here's an aside from Minnie. And she writes, I can attest to this. When I was in my early 20s, I worked at a gas station convenience store and was held up at Knife Point.
2: What? Yeah.
1: I remember when this happened. Are you
2: freaking serious? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my God.
1: After the guy took the money and left, I called the cops and I could swear up and down that I could pick the guy out of a lineup, describe the guy, they did a composite drawing, the whole deal. But just a few days later, when I was back at work, a guy came in and I could have sworn it was the same guy that robbed the store and I got scared. But then he said hi to me, called me by my name, and I realized that in my mind, I'd mixed up one of my regular customers' faces with the face of the guy who held me up. Did the description that I gave the police match the actual criminal or did it match one of my regular customers? I don't know anymore. I have not trusted eyewitness identification since then. Oh wow the brain does weird things with memory and that's
2: it really does. Many. And Minnie, I have to say thank you so much for sharing your truth yeah. with us.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, first of all, that's a terrifying ordeal to have gone through. I'm glad you're still with us. Yeah. But yeah. also, um, you're absolutely right. And I, I I also think that it is it is hard for people to admit that sometimes your mind can play tricks on you. It really does. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, uh, that eyewitness testimony thing, come on now, Minnie. Minnie, write a book. Tell everybody. (laughs) um, Because this is true. I think we rely on it way too much. Way too much. Um, Yeah, for sure. So anyway, thanks again, Minnie. Uh, So in March 2005, Covington shot and killed Audie's Bosket, 36, at a subway station while Audie's was on his way back or or on his way to pick up his four-year-old daughter from nursery school. Mm. Audie's a clerk at the City Revenue Department was survived by three other children in addition to the four-year-old he was supposed to pick up that day. His body was found at the bottom of the steps at the station, and he had been shot in the head and side. Audius
1: had lived a few blocks from Covington, but they did not know each other, so no one at the time thought to investigate Covington for this. Another man, Morris Wells, was arrested and wrongly charged for with obvious murder, though the charges were later dropped when it was determined that Covington committed the murder after he was finally caught for his next murder. Mm. Really? A second time? <laughs> are they just grabbing any black man and accusing them of whatever murder happens to fit? Uh, never mind. Why am I, I even was going asking that? to say, that?
2: <laughs> Beth, are you somebody kidnapped Beth what happened to my favorite white lady she's still there yeah never yes. mind yeah yes that's exactly yeah. what they're doing and also I mean um, Philadelphia is an is an old it's one of the oldest parts of these United States yeah. right then the Declaration of Independence was signed there right but uh, it really only um, that document only applied to certain people right. and The city of Philadelphia has a long history of police corruption. Yeah, that's Um, true. And I can't believe I'm not mentioning it it until now, but um, (laughs) it does and it sucks. (laughs) So um, in May, uh, May 17th, 2005, Covington shot and killed 48-year-old X-ray technician uh, Patricia Trish McDermott as she was heading into work, an early morning shift at Pennsylvania Hospital. Uh, She had just gotten off the number 33 bus and was heading south toward the hospital from the intersection of 9th and Market Street when Covington just shot her. Um, So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. What the what, Beth? So that same day, May 17th,
1: 2005, a passing driver noticed a body on 9th Street and stopped to discover that the person was dead. The driver called police. There was blood on the sidewalk, but no evidence to show what had happened to the person, whether it was suicide, an accident, or possibly a robbery.
2: It was early in the morning as well, so no witnesses were around. uh, As one of the officers, Howard Peterman, looked up to see if the person could have fallen from one of the buildings, Uh, he noticed uh, surveillance cameras on a nearby post office building.
1: The footage from the camera showed that Trish McDermott had exited the number 33 bus and was followed by a man wearing a light jacket and dark pants who had gotten off the same bus. He followed a few steps behind her as she turned the corner and began walking south towards work. He continued to walk with her about half a block down the street, then quickly raised up his
2: arm and shot her in the head. Just unprovoked. Yeah. Totally. So unfortunately, though, the footage from the post office cameras was good enough to show what happened to Trish, it was too grainy to identify her killer's face. As the cameras had been mounted fairly high, they were meant for security of federal buildings against truck bombs. The angle wasn't great, and Covington was wearing a baseball cap.
1: The crime seemed so completely random that there wasn't an obvious direction to start the investigation. The police needed to collect more information. So detectives went door to door and were were able to ask, access more camera footage from local stores, offices, apartment buildings, etc.
2: They spent hours poring over the footage and were able to follow the killer's escape route for more than half a mile, but then he seemed to just vanish. Uh, The next logical step was to publicly release images of him captured from the footage, which generated hundreds of tips. And one very key tip, a bus company employee thought she recognized the man as someone she knew, Juan Covington. That motherfucker, that's not what she said. It turns out he was a regular rider on the number 33 bus, which was the bus that Trish also regularly took to
1: work. Detectives learned that Covington, age 43, also worked at Pennsylvania Hospital and was one of Trish's co-workers. They checked footage from the hospital's surveillance cameras, and one of the cameras showed Covington entering the hospital less than half an hour after the murder. He was wearing the same baseball cap and the same clothing that he'd been wearing when he was Captured murdering Trish in the footage from the post office cameras.
2: Got him, gotcha, bitch. (laughs) Uh, So, Philadelphia District Attorney Lynn Abram, part of the team who were reviewing the surveillance camera footage that resulted in catching Covington, pointed out that without that footage, Trish's murder might never have been solved. Yeah, and Covington might have committed many more murders before he was caught. Surveillance cameras have
1: become a very important tool in law enforcement, much better than eyewitness. Testimony. And uh, another interjection from Minnie circling back to my experience with being robbed at the convenience store. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. several weeks before the robbery happened, new cameras had been installed in the shop. There were three of them viewing from different angles. When the cops came in response to my call and started taking my statement, I told them they would have great footage of the guy and should be able to easily identify him from the cameras because he walked right up behind the counter, right in full view of one of the cameras. The mm-hmm. officer taking my statement looked at me a bit sadly and said, there's nothing in those cameras. They were <gasps> fake. What? So I oh learned later God. that the shop owners had installed them to deter employees from stealing, not to protect employees. Us. Yes. Empl-
2: oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I hate capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Wow. To protect,
1: yeah, to protect them from stealing (laughs) or from uh, wow. Anyway, after that, they installed real cameras, and uh, she'll have another fun story to share another time about what happened some months down the line after real cameras
2: were installed. Jesus Christ, Minnie! (laughs) I can't wait for that story. (laughs) Oh my God! I like I don't even know what to say. (laughs) I. I I, I just thought Minnie was this nice lady from Canada who just likes to listen to True Crime now and then and help us with this show. And oh my God, I need to know all of it more. Wow, Minnie is my new hero. Um, wow, I just, oh man, I... Thank you for um, for trusting us yeah. to tell us about this. Can't wait I, to I, hear, can't, hear more. I know. I can't wait to hear. <laughs> but I know that couldn't have been easy to go through and also to to be honest about with us. So thank you. Um, but on July 12, 2005, police arrested Covington and showed him the footage of Trisha's murder. As he watched, he calmly told them that it was him. On the footage, he asserted that Trish was trying to kill him with x-rays, so he had to kill her to protect himself. He said that she had been exposing him to radiation for months and causing him headaches.
1: He also said that he knew no one would believe him, but that he could feel the radiation whenever he went into the room with her. He confessed to murdering her and two other people because their presence threatened his very existence.
2: Whoa. Have you ever felt radiation? I was just at the dentist the other day, and they take those X-rays of you. They put that big old vest on. I I hear a beep. Yeah, I don't feel anything. No, I
1: don't feel anything. No.
2: Anyway, I wonder what radiation feels like. I don't know. (laughs) Well, if Um, if
1: it was on you for a long time, you would know. (laughs) It would feel like burning. Yeah. Okay, whatever you
2: say. (laughs) Uh, I go every six months. Still nothing. Just just Uh, one little flash. You won't feel anything. Yeah. Okay. All right, I'll take it. I'll shut up. Redact all of this. (laughs) Just eject. Forget everything I said. So one of the saddest parts of this story is that Trish's daughter later described Trish as not having a mean bone in her body. So Trish um, never, ever would have hurt Covington in any way, let alone in this mind, boggling and sadistic way. It's tragic that Covington's very incorrect perception of Trish because of his mental illness drove him to think that this kind person would want to harm him. It's also sad to think that Covington, in his head, that this... This was the reality that seemingly kind hearted people were actually evil and out to get him. Not that we want to excuse him for what he did, but his daily life had to have been
1: a nightmare. Yeah. Covington also confessed that he'd killed his cousin, Reverend Thomas Lee Devlin, because he believed that Thomas had the power to wipe him off the face of the earth. Wow. Whoa. And had used witchcraft to make Covington's gums swell and to cause him stomach problems. Uh, okay.
2: (laughs) Swollen gums and stomach so problems.
1: Yeah, Interesting. Witchcraft. So
2: mental, yeah, mental illness is a hell of a thing. Yeah. I can attest to that. Yeah. Um. Now, can someone please explain to me in a way that makes sense why exactly society is better off by not providing free mental health care and just allowing people to succumb to its effects rather than providing that care for free and ultimately reducing the cost of those effects, both financially and and emotionally on society. Yeah. I'm waiting. Yeah. <laughs> I'll wait for an answer. S- <laughs> Still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> Still waiting.
1: <laughs> on July 14th, 2005, Covington was charged with murder, reckless endangerment, and weapons violations. He had a handgun in his possession at the time he was taken into custody.
2: Um, Yikes. and it's it it is kind of interesting. I don't know what the laws are now, but um, uh, you know, I I know part of people's push for gun reform is for people who are struggling with mental illness, not to be able to have access to guns. Um, So anyway, neighbors at this time uh, described him as quiet and easily offended, but otherwise seemed like any other person. Uh, His relatives thought of him as definitely strange. Some did feel quite uncomfortable around him, but not murderous. Uh, He lived with girlfriends, fathered a son, held jobs, stayed out of trouble with the law and uh, legally bought and carried guns. Yeah.
0: We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.
2: So now we are going to move on into the trial. Hit it, Beth. On July 20th, 2005,
1: Covington's confessions to the murders of Trish McDermott and Reverend Thomas Lee Devlin were read in court and municipal judge Marsha Nyfield ordered Covington held for trial for both murders. Covington also confessed to the murders of Audie's Basket at the Logan subway stop in March.
2: Ballistics evidence also linked him to the shootings of David Stewart and William Bryant, who both survived. David Stewart lost much of the use of his legs as a result of the shooting, which in 2005 were held together by metal uh, or with metal braces, requiring him to use crutches to move around. At the time of Covington's
1: trial, David would still shake and wipe away tears when discussing the shooting. William Bryant at this time needed a wheelchair and had difficulty speaking. His mother was caring for him and at the time said that her son had been recovering slowly
2: also at this time clyde a johnson was still in custody wrongfully accused of the murder of william bryant what uh jesus fucking christ assistant district attorney christopher Diviny withdrew charges of attempted murder against this poor man on october 8th 2005 as ballistics tested linked a gun owned by covington to williams shooting but was he compensated at all
1: Probably, Probably lost not. his job, yeah.
2: his home. Jeez.
1: When Clyde heard the pronouncement of his release in the courtroom, he simply said, wow. Wow, indeed, sir. Wow, indeed. Yep. Yep. Can't,
2: without words.
1: He had been previously released from jail without having to post bail on July 29th, 2005, but charges against him were not dropped until
2: October 8th,
1: 2005. Wow. Wow, indeed. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Mm-hmm. David Mishak, his attorney, said that this should be a lesson in the dangers of building cases around eyewitness accounts. He said that the ballistics tests that linked Covington's gun to the crime was, quote, the equivalent of DNA matching or fingerprints, unquote, and that ballistics tests should be conducted more frequently.
1: In an interview for after the hearing, Clyde said that his life had been on hold since his release from jail. Because the charges were still in place, even though he had been released, he had not been able to returned to his job
2: as an AIDS counselor. Jeez. um, Wow. So when they had come to arrest him for Covington's crime, he said he answered the door with a toothbrush in his mouth and his red shorts on, completely unaware of why the police would even be there. Yeah. He had no idea he had become the main suspect in the shooting of William Bryant, who was an acquaintance of his. He had no prison record, no record of any crimes whatsoever. He was just a regular degular person living his life. At the city's jail, he said,
1: quote, every day was a low point for me, unquote. He said he told police he was innocent from the day they arrested him onward. His co-workers were prepared to testify that he was at work on the morning of the shooting. Jesus Christ. Get an alibi! His manager had computer logins and a sign-in sheet to vouch for him. But still, the bail had been set impossibly high. Having the oh, charges dropped, God. he said, quote, was a burden off my shoulders, unquote. I, I, well, yeah. yeah. To put it lightly, Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, and
2: the burden should have never been no. there. It should have been with the state, too. Um, yeah, completely. At the time of the interview, he said it was too soon to talk about the, the last year or his plans for the future. Um, He said, quote, I just want to breathe, unquote. Um, prophetic words, if there ever were any, yeah. for sure.
1: Back to the actual murderer, Juan Covington. Mm. To avoid the death penalty, Covington pled guilty, but mentally ill to the crimes. His lawyer, Charles Peruto Jr., argued that Covington was a true schizophrenic who was unaware that what he had done was wrong.
2: He said that Covington truly believed that his victims were trying to harm him in some way and had no choice but to kill them. He said that Covington's only motive was delusion and that he believed he was doing everyone a favor by getting rid of these evil people and didn't understand And why everyone was so upset for him killing them. Bruce Eimer, a clinical psychologist based
1: in Huntington Valley, said that Covington bore the signs of a schizopath, a killer powered by a schizophrenic's paranoia and a psychopath's cold hearted penchant for picking off victims without blinking an eye. Now, we tried to find some information out there about the term schizopath, but there's very little available. It seems to be an older term used more in psychology than in psychiatry. And oh. I think what Eimer is describing is schizotypal personality disorder with psychopathic traits. Um, oh. Like the term sociopath, it isn't uh-huh. a term used in psychology or psychiatry anymore. Um, Okay. And it drives me nuts when people use the term sociopath because it's not... It does? Yeah. It's not a psychological diagnosis. And Uh the psych community threw that out like 50 years ago. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. It falls under antisocial personality disorder.
2: So, Beth, I've been wanting to ask you about this for weeks. Really? (laughs) Yes. And I didn't want to bring it up because I didn't want to spoil the episode. Oh, okay. So you... This is... This is not a thing. Uh,
1: Schizopath, I don't think is a thing. (laughs) And and sociopath, um, it was something that people used like 50 years ago. Uh And people commonly still use it, but it's not a diagnosis. No.
2: Antisocial personality disorder is the 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 more appropriate term. Yeah,
1: that's what what it is in uh, the DSM. Yeah.
2: And that's where y- where you um, have no regard for any other living thing.
1: Yeah, they have trouble with empathy. Yeah.
2: Uh huh. Okay. Got it. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks, Beth. Because <laughs> I, I was like, schizopath. schizopath. I'm sure my friend Smith knows oh, about that. Oh,
1: the schizopath thing is uh, something totally different. It sounds like something he made up. <laughs>
2: Well, I, I, like I said, I've been wanting to ask you about it for a long time, and I'm very glad we got to have this talk. Yeah. So. <laughs> According to Bruce Eimer, quote, these killings weren't motivated by lust or pleasure. He decided these people needed to be taken out. He did them efficiently and coldly and avoided capture, unquote. Covington apparently took no pleasure from killing. He likely obsessed about people he considered to be threats and eliminated them when he could no longer control his anxiety. Again, according
1: to Mr. Bruce Eimer, inventor of the schizopath. (laughs) Most serial killers are psychopaths who derive pleasure and a sense of power from their crimes. But one out of every 100 serial killers is a schizopath. A traumatic, really? trauma- well, that's what he says. A traumatic okay. event like the death of a parent could have awakened Covington's schizopathy. So I don't know. This also schizopathy. Sounds schizopathy. Okay. Yeah, this Got all it. sounds okay. made up. Covington's okay. lawyer, Charles Peruto Jr., suggested that his client is a paranoid schizophrenic who could not help but commit the murders to which he'd confessed.
2: You know, I, I, and this is an aside, but I wonder how juries feel about. These um, mental health, yeah, these these experts. It's um, it's
1: got to be really confusing because you know there's each side has their own expert and they're Mm -hmm. they're both uh, you know
2: qualified quote unquote. Yeah, yeah.
1: allegedly qualified. So yeah, and
2: it just depends on who who they like better. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you watch the Jodi Arias trial at all. I didn't watch it. I listened to it on the radio every single day. (laughs)
1: Do you remember? (laughs) her uh the defense psychologist no remind me um he he was not very uh effective um as a a witness but that was Uh their their expert witness Uh and um i think a lot of times for juries you're like i don't know this guy doesn't seem to know what he's talking about (laughs) that's how (laughs) i felt when uh when he was testifying um ah interesting whereas the the uh Psychologist they had on, for the prosecution. She seemed to know her shit, so mm. I, I think it's probably something. I mean, as a juror, you'd have to weigh their presentation. Well, you've been to trials, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. You have experts. to weigh their presentation, but yeah. I, I always, uh, I, I'm. Dying to serve on a jury. Just please <laughs> pick me already. Uh, <laughs> but um, part of it is I know that it's resources. And so if one side has an expert that seems fancier. I know that they also tell the jury how much each expert charges. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know that. At, at, at trials Um, so that the jury can be like, what? You charge $25,000 an hour. Get out of yeah. here. <laughs> you know, of course, you'll say whatever, yeah, whatever you want. Yeah. But, but I also, I mean, the state obviously has, in, in criminal trials, has more resources than... A regular or, person, or, or um, yeah, at who's, trial who's a, not Fred Durst. Yeah, or, what is this Robert Durst? Robert I mean, <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Um, when you have a defense attorney, what is it
2: called? Uh, a public defender. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So sorry, tangent. Yeah. Sorry about uh, that. So on <laughs> my, my bad, <laughs> on March fourth, two thousand six, Covington pled guilty, but uh, but mentally ill. Common pleas court judge Benjamin Lerner immediately sentenced him to three consecutive life terms for murder. He also gave Covington two 20 to 40 year sentences for attempted murder. The intent was that he would never be released from prison again. Um, So now we're going to get into where are they now? Tell us, Beth. Well, Juan Covington is still alive and
1: serving time in state correctional institution, SCI Green, which is a maximum security prison in Franklin Township, Green County, Pennsylvania. If the name of the prison sounds familiar, you may remember it from the mid-1990s.
2: Okay, so around this time almost 70% of the inmates were black, and more than 90% of the guards were white. This sounds like a big problem. Yeah, um, Prisoners in SCI by the way, have you seen the documentary Attica? No, uh. Uh-uh. It's it's about a similar prison population and similar um, makeup of guards, um, and there was a riot. They just wanted the prisoners just wanted to be treated like human Humanely, beings. They, yeah. Humanely, the uprising was filmed. Um, and the uh shooting of all of the prisoners, oh um, by the guards is also filmed, and the survivors were interviewed. It oh, is wow. called Attica. I saw it on we're, Prime. Anyway, Prime. okay, yeah, but uh. Oh, this doesn't sound good. So prisoners in SCI Green reported that some of the guards were using more force than necessary to control them. Um, and a video camera captured evidence related to the complaint. Video cameras do it again, but still <laughs> black people are still treated like, like shit, shit in yeah. a lot of these institutions.
1: Guards at the prison were accused of beating and sexually assaulting prisoners and conducting Mm. cavity searches in view of other prisoners. Uh There was also reports of racism, including reports of guards writing KKK in the blood of a beaten prisoner. Oh, my God. In 1998, two guards were fired and 20 others were suspended, demoted or reprimanded for prisoner abuse.
2: Look, yeah, I don't I don't know what to say about that. I know I know a prison guard is 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 a job. But um, there must be something really tasty about having power and dominion over somebody, especially somebody who if you are white and they are black, there's this um, last aversion, this last place aversion that um, I don't know if it's just particularly Americans or white, white Americans, but um, you could be the poorest, dumbest white person. um, But at least you're not a black person. Yeah, Um, that's that's fucking horrible. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, so Charles Garner, a white prison guard who began working at SCI Green in 1996, was the defendant in two lawsuits, each by a defendant uh, or a different prisoner. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Both lawsuits were later dismissed as one former prisoner disappeared after his release from prison and the other had submitted his lawsuit after a deadline. Um, Grainer was allowed to move on with his life with no consequences. Oh, and also Basuda. <laughs> yes, Minnie, you got that right. She she, uh, she used, used it, it perfectly. <laughs> it fits.
1: <laughs> Grainer later, later became known for the 2003-2004 Abu Ghraib scandal. Grainer oh. was convicted of allowing and inflicting sexual, physical, and psychological abuse on Iraqi detainees in Abu <gasps> Ghraib prison, a notorious prison in Baghdad during the United States occupation of Iraq. And no. I remember when this happened. Yeah. Really? Yeah, the same dude? Same dude.
2: Oh, that's so disgusting. So at
1: least this time he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He was also demoted to private. He got a dishonorable discharge and a forfeiture of pay and allowances. But uh, still kind of seems like it's not enough of a sentence.
2: I'm going to have to agree there.
1: Yeah. Another interjection from Minnie. She said she needs a puppy hug right now. <laughs> but instead of a puppy because we don't have one she requests that we sing the following
2: (laughs) okay ready ready once Once i was was afraid. afraid I was petrified, Petrified. kept thinking I could could never live live without these assholes on my mind. I spent so many nights thinking about about these things they did so wrong. Then Froot Loops came. And, and I learned, learned how to, to get, and along. get along. And so you're back. so you're back. And singing disco. And singing disco. <laughs> Can't, Can't wait to wait go to Crown Con see those files upon, upon your, your face. <laughs> I am so sorry. <laughs> Minnie, that was wonderful. <laughs> oh, my God. I hope that was good medicine for the listeners. <laughs> Thank you, Minnie. Thank you for all you do. Uh, so so Trish McDermott's daughter said that she was glad there had been justice and that no one else would be hurt by Covington. Trish's sister said that seeing the video of her sister's murder actually gave her some peace of mind because it showed that her sister's last moments were not filled with fear and that she was just walking normally. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to get into our takeaways and what we think made Covington snap. What do you got, Beth?
1: Well, mental illness, obviously. Ding, yeah. ding, ding. I don't buy into the schizopath thing if that was wasn't obvious earlier
2: <laughs> he,
1: <laughs> no. he may have been a paranoid schizophrenic or have schizotypal personality disorder But it seems clear that he had delusions and he thought people were after him. And unfortunately, our society doesn't handle mental illness very well. And this is one of the results.
2: Yeah, I like I said earlier, I was I was dying to talk to you about (laughs) the schizopath thing Um, because I'd never seen that word before. No, I hadn't Um, either
1: before this story.
2: Okay and I was I that that's the thing that stuck with me the most about wow. this case is <laughs> the um, thing. the schizo yeah I mean I saw it in an article I was like what the what the yeah, fuck is I think that it's something <laughs> so, that
1: that guy made up I don't know <laughs>
2: Yeah. But I think I absolutely think you're right. I couldn't agree with you more. No matter what the diagnosis was, um, mental mental health health issues is. Yeah. yeah, And and it um, puts other people in danger when we don't have compassion or care for people um, appropriately or having issues. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. at no fault of their own, you know. Yeah, I mean, he was he was going through a lot yeah. um, at the time, right? And so I'm not uh, like ha- sympathizing, like, yeah, he yeah, totally should no, kill those people. He no. should not have. But, but it, I, I don't of, even know if we would even be having this conversation if he had the help. Yeah, that he needed. we wouldn't. We wouldn't be. Yeah,
1: because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know people don't have any control over if they have paranoid ca- schizophrenia or not. You know, it's just, right, right. <laughs> they don't. They can't control yeah. it. And the end, right,
2: uh, so yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I just would encourage I know we're all podcast listeners, but I have listened to interviews with people who've um described what it is like to go through a um schizophrenic episode or what it's like to live with schizophrenia, and it is it's eye opening. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just encourage there are people just like us and po- podcast give us an opportunity to learn more and have more compassion yeah. when it comes to people like this but also my heart goes out to the victims oh, and the victim families yeah. of course right yeah. like they um, were doing nothing yeah, this,
1: they were just living yeah. their lives and walking yeah. down the street and you know mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah it's a sad case um, you're not going to believe this but murder is very yeah. sad <laughs> uh, so <laughs> now we are going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences.
2: Okay. So if you sense potential danger, assess the situation and then take action. Move away from the threat. You will have to decide how immediate the threat is and how drastic your action should be. Join any group of people nearby, cross the street or increase your pace. Go to a well-lit public place. Call 911 immediately if, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, let's say uh, somebody is having a mental episode. There are other phone numbers that you can call besides 911. But right. this um, is if
1: you, you, you feel like you're you in danger. You feel
2: immediate if you feel like you're in danger. I got it. Okay. If you <laughs> believe a, th- a threat is imminent and you see people nearby, you try to get their attention, yell, scream, or make a commotion in any way that you can. And 911 is also an option. Um, if you see someone else in trouble, you can um, call 911 as well um, or any other service that is available to help. Other people in trouble. Um, After you have avoided the threat of a crime. Um, you can call authorities and report it. Um, any and all details um, about the incident, including the suspect description, location of the incident, vehicle used, last known direction of the suspect, all those things. Um, and um, that's you gotta it. Gotta write all those things down immediately. Oh, so. Yes, Remem- remember remember yeah. it in your brain um, as quickly as you can. Yes, jotting yeah. it down is a great idea, Beth. Because yeah, as we discussed you're earlier, ma- your mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh,
1: I was in a car accident. Once and like my memory messed up like where the cars were and th- really? it was like a bunch of cars and one of the cars took off and uh-huh. I'd forgotten that that car took off and so like my brain was trying to make sense of the scene without that car there and yeah
2: oh, it was so
1: weird yeah your mind yeah. can scramble all that stuff so
2: our minds play tricks on us sometimes
1: yeah. so write it down if if uh immediately if you can
2: if you can yeah yeah, or f- pictures with your phone, y'all. Yo. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. So now we're going to get into the shout-out portion of our show where we shout out any content by or about any other oppressed or marginalized groups of folks, any human beings who are not like us, or any true crime goodies. What do you got, Beth?
1: (laughs) Well, I wanted to shout out Yellow Jackets on Showtime. Yes! Yes! Yes,
2: It's not true crime, but it it is really good. It is so good. It's got murders. It's got bears. It's got sex. It's got plane crashes. Oh, my God. All the stuff, yeah. So it's
1: about a girls' soccer team that's flying to some kind of tournament when their plane crashes in the wilderness, and they have to do whatever they can to survive. Survive, um, And what they did to survive, we don't exactly know yet, but nope. it flashes forward into the future when some of the sur- survivors are all grown up and then their past comes back to haunt them.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, bitch, give me back my edges. <laughs> I was going to shout out the same thing. I binged it all in one day. It is, oh, my it God. It was that good. Wow. Yeah. I mean, my, my family was like, you know, you're just not present with us. Fuck off. I'm watching <laughs> Yellow up. Jackets. I'm watching Yellow Jackets. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so um, two things. Shout out to the MLK Tapes. It's a podcast about the con- conspiracy surrounding his assassination, wherever you get your podcast, And also just a little funny, light um, viewing um, as we ease on into um, the cold, frigid waters of 2022, Abbott Elementary is a hilarious show. Um, I believe it is on um, ABC. I think, on, I think it's on Hulu. Yeah, and I've been catching it on Peacock. Or oh no, oh, maybe actually it's no, maybe peacock. I've been catching it on Hulu. I don't know. Anyway, you can stream it, but it's Abbott. Just Google it. Abbott yeah. Elementary because you can, it is available for free online, but it's about a group of dedicated, speaking of Philadelphia, it takes place in Philadelphia um, in in a Philadelphia public school called Abbott Elementary. And it's um, like a, uh, kind of like the office, but yeah, I was going to say kind of like,
1: uh, parks and recreation. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 Um, and it is just so funny. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I I love that
1: kind of humor too. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it's just about these public servants who are outnumbered and underfunded. And it's just, you know, we all know the problems in our public school system, (laughs) but it is really, really funny. So Abbott elementary. So that is yellow jackets on showtime. Uh, the MLK tapes, wherever you get your podcasts and Abbott elementary, um, um, I think it's streaming on Hulu for yeah. free somewhere streaming yes. somewhere I think streaming it's Hulu <laughs> somewhere I yeah. am uh, not a real journalist so I can't really tell you more than that uh, so in the meantime that's it for today but where can the people find us Beth? our website is fruitloopspod.com our Facebook page is
1: Fruit Loops Pod and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook we are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod and links to our sources will be in our footnotes if you want to support the show you can send us a donation on the cash app just google fruit loops pod cash app or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean. this will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting there's no minimum and no commitment even a dollar would help and as always we have merch for sale on our website get your sweatshirts
2: it's cold out there Uh, (laughs) this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every thursday so until next time look alive y'all it's crazy out there
3: It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.